Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm actually into music. You're into music? And literature. But music is a unifying force, a cultural force and a source of both delight and frustration. And nowhere is this more evident than in the book I'm reading today called Road Series by Hugo Race. So, Hugo, welcome to 3CR. Oh, thank you. Good morning. I should say welcome back because you've been here as a musician. Uh, yeah, many times over the last 20 or 30 years. Ah, so what got you into writing a book? Well, you know, I was travelling for a very long time and some of the more exotic places that I went to provoked people to ask me about what happened while I was there. So I began taking notes of what was happening to me so as that I could start to remember it all in retrospect. And the book Road Series began from the notes that I was taking. Because it's a personal journey that uh, we have described here. It's also in some ways uh, the history of a band or the band in history and also perhaps an insight into music as a cultural force. So it sort of works on a, a variety of levels for me anyway. Mm, mm, but yeah, first sure. and foremost, fundamentally, it's about your experience as a musician. And if I may, uh, I decided to get out of town. Early springtime, English countryside hurdles past the train windows. Sprays of wildflowers ignite fields between rivers and lakes. Rich bodies of water glistening in the alien European green. Where I come from, time moves slowly. Dust and flies are always hanging in the air. Here there are birds and cottages and a sense of old world order echoing sentimental books I read as a child. Nothing seems real. You're moving from Australia to England. Your first sort of experience of starting off or? In this book, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's um, the first trip out of Melbourne. In, in reality, I'd already been to England and parts of Europe earlier in my life. But this is with the idea of starting a band or becoming involved in the music scene, etc. Well, yes. At this point, I've, I've just joined Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds mm. and travelled over there to, to start work with them. The lifestyle then? Because there are certain references that come out here um, about my own private fantasia and such like, the way things were being perceived and the way you were seeing things and the reason for that. Any comment there? Well, look, the, the, my book is, um, is fairly brutal when it comes mm. to um, um, the use of drugs and what they do to people's lives. Because, I mean, obviously the music uh, scene is, is rife with drugs as... Um, are most creative scenes and has been for a long time and is very unlikely to change. Uh, it is how people get along with the, the problems that, um, that drugs bring in their wake that is often an education and, and something through which people um, evolve in their own lives. But that personal journey, because the book goes on over decades, there have been other impacts as well. There's been the drugs which changed or influence the way you saw things, but then impact on uh, relationships, children, all of those sorts of things. Yes, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this was um, anything to do with drugs. Basically, by um, the end of the 1980s, when I moved to um, Berlin, um, I've stopped taking any drugs and never take them again. Mm. Um, but 
the life of the musician and the travelling musician in, in particular uh, inevitably uh, creates problems for relationships and family structures. And mm. be, let's say that beyond the simple question of whether you have any talent worth sharing with the world, beyond the drugs that will be thrown in your path, beyond the shattering of all of your most fundamental personal human relationships, there is still more heartbreak to come and that's what happens in road series it doesn't it's just the level keeps rising the challenge the challenge so there's the personal challenge there are also challenges uh with the band um and keeping a band together two nights at the club in collingwood sell out a little ready money is finally coming into our hands but it seems the band is getting paranoid suspicions circulate are all members being paid the same? Who's really in charge? We're not thinking straight. Too many mind-bending substances and lost late nights sour the first taste of success. Strange and disturbing incidents start to occur to do with girlfriends, affairs, porn, guitars, disappearing equipment, bad debts, broken promises. The art of keeping a band together. <laughs> What's that like? Well, it's you know, it's, it's, you walk a very, very uh, thin white rope. In that chapter, we're we're talking about 1986, 1987. We're talking about things that happened nearly 30 years ago. I'm not sure that the scene is exactly the same in 2016 as it was in 1986. I think it's changed really a lot. And perhaps one of the interesting things about Road Series is that it brings back that vision, that insight of the 1980s, uh, 30 years later, and it's not that familiar to everybody. So it's fundamentally changed, do you think? I do. Right. I do think it has fundamentally changed, yeah. Because you, you talk about promoters uh, disappearing, uh, things being stolen. Oh, well, all, all of this kind of still goes on. But in 2016, <laughs> you've got a much a more crowded field of creatives to begin with. And you've also got the internet, which is the major complicating factor. So it's not really similar to 1986 when there are many fewer artists and everyone is much more isolated from each other. And I mean that in the sense of Australia from Europe, this band from that band, Melbourne from Los Angeles, mm. whatever comparison you want to make. There's also that reference, I think it was to Mushroom Records and contracts and losing creative control, which is a problem bands still have today or not? I, to be quite honest, it, it seems to me that a lot of young bands and artists don't even want creative control. They wouldn't know what to do with it. I'm not sure that they even really know what it is because a lot of what I see is is uh, emerging artists with a career plan. I don't necessarily see inspired artists going in whatever direction their, their creativity pulls them. So are we losing creativity or musicians Absolutely. giving up? Absolutely. We are. We're losing... Um, original voices, original music and original perceptions um, of the world because everything is becoming homogenised. Our thoughts are becoming a collective thought, which, you know, might sound like a, a noble new age thing, but actually means we've got a, a dilution of, the, of the, the group unconscious. Right. It's merging into one thing. You have less variability. You have less eccentricity. The eccentricity that we see in, in artists is often to do with their own desire to, to uh, uh, monopolise attention. And acquire success. Yeah, rather than out of any genuine urge to spit in the eye of the machine. This is not very cool in 2016. Yeah. Success is cool in 2016. In 1986, we were not after success. Yeah. You were after survival to a certain extent. Well, we, we were after discovery, really, yeah. I think. Yeah. 
but this sort of leads quite nicely into uh, these references to uh, trips to Mali and the African influence um, and perceptions there in terms of, um, mm. after all, now where have I got it, page 217? This is still, um, I've lost the passage. Um, after all, this is still Africa. And which was the, um, I've lost the actual reference that I had. I thought that I had it. No, there it is. After all, this is still Africa, the continent that delivered blues, jazz, gospel and rock and roll, the cultural package of soul and style with which we identify today in our so-called developed world. The midwife was slavery in the diamond mines. Africa is still recovering from the aftershocks of colonialism and globalism, but its beating heart is strong. There's a primal power here, vibrant and animated, and you feel it through the street murals and the body language and the music and the very air you breathe. But it can swing either way, and just beyond the peaceable surface of things, you feel the shadow side, the poverty, the rivalries, the history. I mean, this is a source of inspiration, this Africa... The reason for that yeah. inspiration? What what was it for you? Africa is this alternate reality. It, it is to me that um, you know it raises questions. It it it, uh, it challenges your own conceptions about your own life and 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 what it might mean. I went there in the first place uh, in pursuit of the origins of of music. Music comes from Africa. I mean, we all come from Africa originally, anyway. Or so we're told by the anthropologists. But just talking about rhythm and blues and jazz, I mean, this all comes from Africa originally uh, with the slave trade into the United States. And as a musically, I grew up um, very much on the, on the blues and incorporated a lot of blues into the music that I played. So inevitably, I was drawn to go uh, to the, the, the River Niger, back to Mali, which well, is where the blues came from. So you actually visit Mali, which... Uh Interesting because a lot of the other places, London, Berlin and such like, but Mali, the, the origins. But the last chapter in the book is when you come out of Mali, you've gone there again, but it's a more um, disillusioned image or how would yeah, you put it? David, yeah. Driving out to the airport for the flight back to Europe, past the dirt roads and ditches and packs of kids, the half-finished shopping malls, the half-abandoned housing developments and industrial complexes. We seem to be witnessing an apocalyptic Western future rather than an old society in transformation. Everything is frozen, derailed, nipped in the bud. It seems like we're getting out just in time, that it's going to blow wide open. The weapons are packed and ready, the soldiers eager to deploy, and the financiers calculating their investments. Disillusionment? Reality check. Mm-hmm. What's the reality then that we're facing? And is it, how is it going to influence the music? I think every, everyone's experience of returning to a place in which their first impressions were very important and provided them with a great inspiration, returning to that place and starting to see a little bit deeper into the situation, starting to see the, the, the tragedy behind the first appearances. You know, it deepens your understanding uh, of a culture. Mm. Um, and that's certainly what happened over the, the three long trips into Mali. The first trip we made, we were not even particularly aware of the fact that we were nearly always being cordoned off by, uh, by armed guards. It was done without our consent. It was done out of our sight. By the third time in 2012, it was very obvious because um, the news was all around. Um, when we went to 
Bamako in 2012, no one else would go there. The flights in were empty. There was no one in the airport, the highways. There was no cars. It was like a, a ghost uh, country mm. um, because the jihad was moving down. They were just outside the city. And that's why I made those comments um, about how it seemed like a Western apocalypse. But the uh, Mali, and as you said, Africa is almost the soul of the music yeah. that we have today. Right, right. Is that soul <coughs> in danger of being lost? Yes, it is. The Malian musicians are, are very much aware of this themselves and uh, are very resilient, committed people. Um, for example, in Malian music, most of the lyrics, nearly all of them are political. There are some love songs, but uh, basically they sing about social issues and often the singers are giving advice to the listeners as to get an education, you know, don't trust the jihad, that kind of thing. Uh, very different to how we do things in Australia. This begs the question then of the role of music in society and culture and developing... Absolutely, uh, yeah. And, and the lyrics as well. Yeah. One last question before we're going to have to finish. Just wondering about the writing style. Do you think your work as a lyricist and things like that with music <coughs> has influenced the way you've written this book? Uh, yes, David, I think it has. I think that um, as a lyricist... I've sought to compress as much as possible, to reduce as much as possible, to say something with very simple language that resonates on other levels of a, of a person's mind. And in Road Series, I've tried to follow that throughout. And part of that was just because of the principle of what I said, but it was also, there, is, there was so much to put into this book. Mm. Well, so it, it had to be boiled down to like its essence. Well, it certainly does resonate. Um, the book is Road Series by Hugo Race and it's a transit lounge <coughs> publication. Jan, over to you. Well, I'm changing course quite dramatically. Fiona McFarlane made quite a name for herself as uh, an author with her debut novel, The Night Guest. It was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. Congratulations there, Fiona. Thank you. The book tapped on issues that are very topical now, elder abuse and dementia, but it also introduced a tiger, or did it? Fiona McFarlane is here with her next book, The High Places, but it's not a novel. No, it's a collection of short stories. Short stories, well, and the first short story has a bit of in it about a tiger. Or is it? <laughs> well, it, it does. I mean, there there is definitely a feline presence in, in that story that um, is sort of strangely linked, I suppose, to the night guest. I mean, the, the, the biggest feline presence in that story is a cat with, an inf with a terrible infection and a, a young couple who've just married secretly that day and she's a, she's a vet are forced to go and give this cat a catheter on their wedding night. And um, we do get, we get sort of moments from the point of view of this cat throughout the story as they're sort of heading toward the cat and all sorts of things go wrong. Wrong. Now, yes. what causes it, what happens after the things go wrong is that all these characters look at themselves in a slightly different way. And this is, well, for, for a start, Sarah has appeared to be a drunken lout in a car crash. <laughs> the, her, um, the, the person she ran into, Mr Donald, well, he appears, he could be a school principal and then he talks about his leg that's gone and maybe he was a returned soldier. Well, he wasn't either of those. And the new husband, David, 
has ends up studying Sarah after this accident in a completely different way. So he's reviewing her too. Is this what's behind each one of these stories? Yeah, I think the the short story as a form absolutely lends itself to to these sort of moments in which people discover mysteries about themselves. And it may not be that they solve those mysteries, but they actually just sort of articulate them or confront them at some moment. So I suppose I resist this idea of of an epiphany, you know, that sort of linchpin of, of many short stories where someone comes to some new realisation about themselves. And I think about my, the epiphanies in my stories as being sort of conditional epiphanies. I think we do come to moments of revelation, but it doesn't necessarily mean we, we change the way we live. It's just sort of this moment in which we discover something that's strange to us. And I think a moment of marriage, I mean, David and Sarah have just married and they love each other, but they're also married because they're living in England and they, they need a visa for Sarah. So it's sort of this very practical thing they've done, which means that they're thinking about marriage in a just a slightly more pragmatic way. But in fact, the the events on this road in this car accident as they head toward the infected cat um, force them to, to kind of confront the mystery of human personality and the fact that almost, you know, what have we done? This person is so so alien to me, though I know her, I know him and I love her, I love him. And yet we've we've sort of combined our lives and what does that actually mean and how do we how do you respond as a unit then to tragedy because they're actually quite separate in the in the tragedy that occurs well in another book and this is coming combining two elements the tragedy because uh Susan has become a widow, Mm -hmm. and also the exotic animals, because the front cover of this book, The High Places, is of a giraffe. And this next story takes place in the Taronga Park Zoo, or that's one of the locations in uh, in Sydney, which is quite an exotic place, really, where you have to get on the ferry and go across water to get there and... It's, it's so far away from where Susan and her two children have ever been from life in a country. And it's Rose who's affected there. Rose, the sister, who um, knows about animals in the zoo because she also knows that a lot of animals don't choose a single mate. Yes, that right, that's right. So that's interesting research. <laughs> yes, it was. Actually, it's not difficult to to discover that that most animals don't mate for life. I mean, I think we do. We tend to be sentimental about about swans mating for life, for example, and in fact they don't really do it. And I think that's there's something interesting about the way that humans project onto animals, you know, basically the message that they want to take from them. And that's one of the things, I mean, I don't deliberately set out to write about animals, but they do keep popping up. And I think they're they're such an interesting part of our human narrative and at the same time their otherness is complete you know and so there's always this sense of something that we're trying to read into this being that actually we can't conceive of which I'm really interested in. Well talking about that putting human projection on animals we have a colossal squid. We do have a colossal squid. Colossal squid. squid. Yes not a giant it's a colossal. A colossal Mm -hmm. yes and now if they find anything bigger what will it be? (laughs) They're not sure gargantuan he said the marine biologist suggests. a squid has an eye, very much like a human's eye. Yes. So they try and people try and, as you say, personify a squid. They do. Um, it, it makes my marine biologist very anxious, actually, because he, he is actually probably suffering from malaria and quite hallucinogenic at this time. And he's visited by the ghost of Charles Darwin. And Darwin, um, Darwin's theory of natural selection was actually questioned by people who pointed out that that squid and um, 
octopi have eyes that look human. They're just very big versions of our eyes, but they're invertebrates. I mean, they're not, they're not human. And so there's this sense that, well, this is God given, you know, that the human eye also in the squid, this is the same maker, you know? And so actually the squid's eye was this point of contention for Darwin. And my main character is a marine biologist who has sort of secretly, he and his team have captured this colossal squid, which has never been done. And he's holding the squid captive on a Pacific Island while they sort out the legality of, <laughs> of using it, you know, as a scientific subject. Um, and he feels this, this sense. I mean, he knows, he knows rationally that this is not a human eye, that this is a squid eye, but he can't help but feel that there is a human intelligence inside this animal looking out at him and Darwin's very upset with him about it. Called Mabel. Mabel. He's yes, called he calls. Squid. Yeah. As good as Mabel. Right. Now you mentioned that there uh, there's quite a few animals through these stories. Mm-hmm. And do you realize parrots are a linkage through so many of these stories? There's a lot of parrots. There are yeah. a lot of parrots. We have um, a talking parrots and we have uh, parrots that appear on the site where there's going to be a sacrificial burning and we have um, parrots, automated parrots too, that, uh, you know, once their innards are shown, will they ever move again? So we've got quite a lot of parrots. We've got um, alcohol mentioned twice and it's gin and tonics. Is that a favourite of yours? Yeah, I suppose it is. I moved to England and that seemed to be what I drank a lot of. So, yeah. <laughs> now, we're talking about exotics. We will also talk about uh, one old Rose who, who knows that um, she does knows that about animals not mating for life and she's had the a few affairs with married men. Mm-hmm. And one of those she chooses to have an affair with is American. Yeah, that's pretty exotic, isn't it? <laughs> but it would be if you were out the back in country Queensland and Americans fell from the sky. Yes, which happens in one of the stories, which is called Those Americans Falling from the Sky. <laughs> and it's set um, during World War Two, and uh, it's told from the point of view of a young girl whose town, whose small town, is suddenly overrun by these American paratroopers who are there training before they're sent into the Pacific. And they are this very exotic sort of presence. And, you know, not only because they do jump from the sky at regular intervals, but because they seem to bring this sort of glamour into the town that, that it hasn't experienced before. And in contrast, in this town, there's boring Frank. Frank, the stepfather. This is reading from um, Fiona McFarlane's book. Frank was large and ugly. There was something so definite about him. He had country arms, though he wasn't country, and hair, uh, the colouring of cicada shells. I like that, you know, sort of that dry raspness. This, this stepfather, Frank, used to often beat these, this girl that was telling the story with his belt. And a bit further on, we heard Frank calling our names, his voice soft as leather. Oh, that was scary. <laughs> I felt sorry for that. Good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so there was these cultural expectations, the delights of the Americans and, and whatever. And even within... Um, you mentioned people's change perspectives. Sometimes money can change perspectives. And we have one character in one of the uh, stories called Art Appreciation who could choose between two women, a woman who valued art appreciation or the appreciation of art to one that would fit in 
at the greyhounds. I quite like that, you know, sort of the, that women can sort of be in, be seen in different stratas. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think I think the thing is about about Henry. So this is the man who. Um, who, who believes he can choose between these two women um, and whose mother has won the lottery and so he has this sort of um, second-hand good fortune, I suppose, that, that his mother is going to give him some money and she's going to give him her house. And so he feels that this opens up options to him that he could then, he could then imagine a life with this woman, Ellie, who goes to art appreciation classes, which he resists the idea of on Friday nights. And on Friday nights, he himself goes to the Greyhound races. And his ex-girlfriend, Kath, is someone who absolutely he feels is fitting in there. And he thinks of it sort of as a choice between, I suppose, the genteel and then the good the good fun, I suppose. And um, in the end, it's not really entirely his yeah. choice. <laughs> get you to read a little bit and I this is another from another short story there's how many short stories 13 oh they're, they're all as different as if from each other different parts of the world they're written from mm-hmm. but this one I think should be on every Valentine's Day card oh yeah okay I like that idea so this is from a story called the movie people in which a small town has been the um, the location for the shooting of a period film. And after the film production moves out, the town sort of mourns their absence and tries to live as if they're still in the, the 19th century period of the film that had been made. Except for our narrator who really resists this idea, but his his wife is absolutely into it. And she moves back home with her parents and she's she gets herself engaged to... The, the star of the film stand in and he so our narrator is trying to win her back but resisting the idea that he needs to wear a frock coat to do it so he addresses her here Alice darling can you please come home and love me forever entangle your limbs in mine on the sofa while watching television pluck your eyebrows in the bathroom mirror while I'm trying to shave go running with me in the gorgeous mornings and dance to bad disco music in your underwear but she she's dressed as a spinster librarian at this point, so disco music is is the furthest thing from her mind. I did like that, and you give us play with people. You know, you you build up um, families out of nowhere. You we jump into people's lives. We sort of, as you say, an epiphany happens, and we're left now we're left very satisfied but I must say those people are much more interesting at the end of your short stories oh which I like that that's I think that's sort of what a short story is for um and it's nice to hear that there's satisfaction involved because you want to you want to leave people satisfied with the story they've heard but still with a sense that these these people continue to expand outwards outside the boundaries of the story so I think um you know, managing in the, the contained space of a short story to turn people into sort of interesting entities is exactly what we're trying to do. You also use religion a few times mm-hmm. to, you know, get that epiphany over. Yes, I do. Or lack of. You know? Yes, or lack of, yes. My marine biologist well, is, well, a, is a lapsed Christian. Yeah, and this is where, with short stories, they are so so hard because you have to have so many good beginnings and so many good ends, where a novel you can just have one at each. Yes, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> but um, I just want to quote two first lines and this poor squid gets in there a lot when I began my study of the colossal squid I still believed in God now you know (laughs) or in the hour of his humiliation Reverend Adams still wore his hat (laughs) 
You know, these these are where you've taken us. So, Fiona McFarlane, what are we going to expect from you next? <laughs> next, I think, will be a novel that I'm working on now. Will it have a tiger? Mm, I'm fairly certain there'll be no tiger. Okay. <laughs> well... 13 most enjoyable short stories. Thank you very much, Fiona McFarlane, and she's written The High Places, uh, published through Hamish Hamilton. And I interviewed Hugo Race, uh, his book Road Series about his life on the road, and it's a transit lounge publication.